0: Professor Stanley Kowalski is a Ph.D., UNH Franklin Pierce's International Technology Transfer Institute director, a senior lecturer, and even a class of 2005 alum. Let's get to know more about his background and why he entered the legal field. This is Profiles, a special series of the podcast The Legal Impact, where you get to know the powerhouse people at UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. UNH Franklin Pierce is now accepting applications for JD and graduate programs. Learn more, apply at law.unh.edu. So, Stan, you have one of the more unique backgrounds of our faculty, I'd say. Uh, what, I mean, let's start off with your education. You, you actually have a bachelor's in biology from University of Pittsburgh, and then afterwards went on to even get a Ph.D. at Cornell in plant breeding. Uh,
1: yeah, uh, A.J., I, I think the way to look at this is, is I, am, I consider myself sort of the proto- uh, hybrid program student, mm-hmm. in that I uh, have approached the legal uh, profession, career, uh, later, in my, in, later in my life, later in my career development, uh, and also I've come into it as being a professional in another field, mm-hmm. that is uh, science, uh, s- science, uh, and in particular, in my case, agricultural uh, science and uh, I make that transition. So I'm coming into it as primarily a scientist who then learns about the law, and particularly intellectual property law. So my career path, um, though, there's a consistency across it all the way back to way, way back to 1970, uh, and then what happened in 1970. Uh, when I was 16 years old at the time, I was watching television and uh, there was a newscast uh, with uh, Norman Borlaug who Dr. Norman Borlaug, who was called the uh, father of the Green Revolution, which was uh, he was an agricultural scientist, a plant breeder who had uh, developed varieties of wheat which in, 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 in what, that, what he did was to forestall uh, famine in South Asia, in Pakistan, India, and through Southeast Asia as well with the development of these wheat varieties. Um, and I watched that and I thought to myself, that's really fantastic, the application of science, technology, and innovation to agriculture. In order to have such wide-ranging humanitarian impact as uh, Norman Borlaug had done and that inspired me Uh, and then I decided I want to go into uh, agriculture uh, and uh, address uh, food security issues around the world through crop development and plant breeding and that was my early uh, my earliest interest uh, and therefore I have the degree in biochemistry and, and biology, as well as later the PhD in plant breeding. And incidentally, uh, when I was working later at Texas A&M as a postdoctoral scientist, uh, Norman Borlaug, Dr. Borlaug's office was right across the hall oh, um, wow. from, my, from our lab, and I used to talk to him on a regular basis. Uh, so it was interesting how this uh, circle was closed. So that was uh, my uh, my earliest uh, my earlier career development activities, um, but then things then things changed as the world changed uh, and. Um, uh, we can go into that now. Did, did, did you well, want to? Did let's talk, to comment.
0: I'd like to know a little bit about more about your postdoctoral research that you did in Singapore. Like that, that's especially doing the international relations is very important to what you do now, and I'd imagine was very helpful for understanding the uh, like the the technology dealing with people, the government, intergovernmental relations. I'm assuming are important with things like this. Precisely.
1: Uh, so then that uh, that's another step in the uh, career development journey. Uh, so we, we go back to initially, I'm interested in plant breeding for uh, humanitarian purposes to address global food security. Essentially, it was, there were problems, looming famine, uh, which unfortunately is looming again in the world uh, with many things that are happening. When I was at Cornell uh, in my Ph.D. program, I was very fortunate to have uh, an advisor, uh, actually uh, faculty advisors, um, who were connected to international development. For example, my uh, Ph.D. advisor was Dr. Peter Gregory, uh, who was from Great Britain initially. And uh, at Corn- and then at Cornell, he became increasingly involved with international development in agriculture. So you can see this step-by-step uh, process where I move from interested in plant breeding and genetics for uh, purposes of global food security to alleviate famine, as Dr. Borlaug, Norman Borlaug, had inspired me, then to Cornell University. Uh, to study um, PhD in plant breeding under Peter Gregory as my advisor, who then, he subsequently went to work for the something called the CGIAR, which is uh, an international consortium of agricultural development centers around the world, uh, primarily funded through the World Bank. And he did that, and then he went to South America and worked in Peru at a place called the International Potato Center. My work at Cornell, uh, my PhD work, uh, worked on potatoes, particularly uh, wild potatoes from South America to develop uh, advanced potato varieties, um, which are resistant to insect attack. Uh, and this inspired me. I thought, wow, that's really interesting. He's uh, went to South America, he's working international work. I find it very interesting. Um, I'd like to do that. Uh, However, I couldn't find, uh, I couldn't uh, get a position uh, in any of the CGIAR agricultural centers around the world but I did find an opportunity to work in uh, Singapore in biotechnology in 1989. At that time, Singapore was just investing and diversifying into biotechnology. So I worked there for a couple years and uh, began to understand in a more uh, direct way uh, how international development works. Um, And then um, subsequently I went, returned to the United States and worked in several uh, research uh, jobs And, uh, for example, Texas A&M, and then finally at the United States uh, Department of Agriculture, USDA. Uh, But I was still very interested in international work. Uh, And then I returned to Cornell And uh, in uh, the late 90s. I returned to Cornell and uh, got a job with the International Service for the Acquisition of AgBiotech. Which was a nonprofit organization, working once again working with the CGIAR, uh, the International Agricultural Centers, uh, and at that point, the primary issue was intellectual property.
0: Yeah, it, it, that's a huge thing. That I'd say the people that aren't in the legal sphere or the technology sphere don't understand the, the, the tremendous amount of importance that's needed with patents and being able to share technologies via this, this protected rights that's uh, in the IP world.
1: Yes, precisely. Uh, what we worked on at ISAAA was a problem. And the problem was, was uh, 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 advanced biotech rice called golden rice. And golden rice was developed in Switzerland, in Germany, by a team of scientists, and it, it's a great product. It's genetically engineered rice, which uh, expresses carotene in the rice. So it's golden, it's, it's yellow. Mm-hmm. And it was designed and developed in order to address uh, particularly bad food security problems in South and Southeast Asia in the context of vitamin A deficiency. Uh, particularly in children. Um, However, there was a big problem. The big problem was intellectual property rights. Uh, Many of the components of Golden Rice, the uh, technical components and processes, were patented by major corporations. Uh, For example, and uh, obviously the big example is Monsanto. Uh, And uh, there was uh, genetic promoters uh, which were owned by Monsanto. So then it became, that became uh, the prototype of uh, understanding the challenges of uh, dealing with intellectual property in the context, once again, going back to Norman Borlaug, of uh, addressing global food security uh, and even issues of famine and malnutrition and the importance of intellectual property and the management of it uh, in order to facilitate uh, distribution of advances and access to advances in biotech, which will uh, address these uh, humanitarian issues of food security.
0: And over the span, you must have been slowly deciding to get your JD so you can better understand this and work more properly in this field?
1: Uh, Well, what happened then when in the late 1990s, when I was with ISAAA at Cornell working on uh, this issue, as well as other issues in agriculture, international development, uh, food security, and intellectual property, how it all fits together. I I decided that intellectual property is a very, very serious uh, concern in in terms of um, advancing agricultural innovation around the world to address these food security issues. And um, I found that Franklin Pierce Law Center was the uh, leading institution uh, in intellectual property, particularly not only intellectual property, but the um, the, the the combination of intellectual property, um, uh, public interest, uh, and innovation and science tech innovation. So. Um, and also international work. So Franklin Pierce Law Center really connected uh, intellectual property, international development, uh, public interest, and innovation all together in in one program. And it was exemplified by the faculty here, such as uh, Tom Field, Bill Hennessy, Carl Jorda. So it was an easy decision to make to come here because It was a very short step from working at Cornell in ISAAA to the Franklin Pierce Law Center, which is what brought me here. So I come here, once again, from a science background, uh, fairly highly developed science background, into intellectual property, as opposed to many who uh, are lawyers who then move over and work in the science area.
0: Were there any epiphanies or surprising moments in your IP studies that um, maybe you didn't expect it, uh, would be important in the field?
1: Uh, well, there's there's several. Um, I, I think one of the with the Franklin Pierce Law Center, one one of the real epiphanies was. Uh, the sophistication of the understanding of intellectual property and what it really is Mm -hmm. and how it really works. Because there's a lot of misunderstanding uh, everywhere uh, in the United States, around the world. There's a lot of advocacy, which is misguided. Uh, And what I liked about the Franklin Pierce Law Center and what really helped me was the just the solid uh, academic and practical uh, education and analysis of intellectual property and what it is. And um, one of the professors who was really most helpful in this was Marcus Hearn, Mm -hmm. who is now deceased. Uh, But he uh, was brilliant in helping us to see the connection between intellectual property and real property, in other words, the law of property, which goes back hundreds of years, and the consistency across that. So we begin to understand the the legal dimensions of intellectual property, and once we can understand that in a a more comprehensive and better way, then we can begin to uh, better address, once again, these problems and challenges with intellectual property and advanced innovations um, in order to address global challenges such as food security and famine and hunger, things of that nature. Uh, but, but, but that's uh, what was one of the real uh, epiphanies is just the, um, the brilliance of faculty and how they could uh, make those connections with uh, the law property and intellectual property and then apply that to uh, these global challenges, which are very serious and they continue to be serious.
0: What was your next move after you received your JD?
1: Um, After I received my JD, I had uh, worked as a consultant with uh, uh, WIPO, uh, and uh, we worked with a commercial law development program, which we still do, uh, with uh, the Department of Commerce, as well as... um, Various collaborators, such as University of California, Davis, there was an organization there called uh, PIPRA, which is Public Interest for um, agric- uh, IP and Agriculture. We worked with them. So we, we did that work. And, uh, and also, I was working with uh, Professor John Kavicki here to set up a uh, clinical program uh, where we would look at uh, patent, what's called patent landscapes, patent database analysis. Uh, in order to um, analytically address issues related to patents, innovation, uh, global development, global access to innovation. Um, And this led to some really interesting work later on, because then in 08, uh, at that time, Dean Susan Ritchie um, formally uh, set up the uh, uh, International Tech Transfer Institute Clinic. ITTI clinic and then here we, at UNH here, Franklin Pierce just to make here that clear. here at UNH uh, the Franklin Pierce Law Center at that time and uh, then we began to do more uh, dynamic collaborations for example with uh, WIPO uh, the World Health Organization uh, the U.S. government um, and uh, for a, a good example of that was we worked closely with the World Health Organization and the World Intellectual Property Organization, which is WIPO on a project related to global access to medicines and patent, patent data analysis, uh, which uh, we then presented the, our findings in Geneva, Switzerland, to uh, a joint uh, World Trade Organization, WHO-WIPO conference uh, in order to uh, illustrate the uh, the extent or the lack of extent of uh, patenting on essential medicines around the world, uh, which uh, then has become a, a, a critical um, issue with COVID vaccines mm-hmm. uh, and whether or not patents are a problem. Uh, so our early work in this area helps to better understand um, whether or not patents uh, are, in fact... Uh, a major factor in blocking access to medical innovation.
0: Yeah, and we've talked about it in a previous podcast about the the importance of patents with regards to COVID vaccine development and distribution, and um, and why they, we shouldn't just bypass the whole system to, just because because there's a pandemic because there's long term implications to doing something like that.
1: Uh, the uh, well, that's the issue of uh, c- uh, COVID uh, vaccines and access in developing countries. Uh, <clears throat> and the um, discussion about whether a waiver of the patent rights would in any way uh, facilitate access to vaccines in developing countries and um, probably, probably will have zero impact uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, one of which, which we found in our earlier work on essential medicines and patents, is that the major drug manufacturers, to a great extent, don't even seek patent protection in many developing countries mm-hmm. uh, because there is uh, no risk of uh, piracy of their intellectual property rights there. There's just infrastructure doesn't exist. Uh, therefore, the, the corollary of that with COVID vaccines would be well, even if patent rights were waived, what difference would it make? Because they haven't even patented these vaccines in those countries. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like an oxymoron. Uh, so, and, and that gets back, actually, to the old philosophy of the Franklin Pierce Law Center, where Franklin Pierce Law Center was, in many ways, uh, neutral in terms of advocacy for intellectual property. It was more of a... A very uh, objective analysis of intellectual property and its role, as opposed to advocating whether it's good or bad. No, we just uh, we just understand it and advocate for education in intellectual property so that um, everyone can uh, utilize it to the benefit to their benefit.
0: Can you give the elevator pitch for some of the projects you've done through the ITTI clinic, working with our students? Uh, other
1: other projects? Yeah,
0: super short. There, there's a there's a broad range of very complex topics that the uh, you and the students work on. Uh,
1: well, yeah, we uh, we had. We had done a number of projects. The one I just mentioned was the Essential Medicines List mm-hmm. um, with the patent landscape work with the World Health Organization and uh, WIPO. We had also done an e- interesting and extensive amount of work with the United States Government Commercial Law Development Program, um, which is part of the U.S. Department of Commerce. And uh, we did a two-year project where we were working with uh, them in collaboration to help Algeria, which is a country in northern Africa, diversify its economy uh, from petroleum, which is I think probably 95% plus of the economy, more towards innovation. And uh, the reason this is important is because the petroleum age will end in this century, and uh, these countries, such as Algeria, need to diversify their economies towards innovation and intellectual property. So uh, my, my team of students and I uh, analyzed Algeria, then we uh, worked with an Algerian delegation which came here for a week of educational programs and capacity building. And then I went to Algiers with the uh, U.S. Department of Commerce to talk to people in Algiers, in, Algiers, in Algeria. And uh, the student team, of course, supports me with information, and uh, PowerPoints, things of that nature, so that I can be credible when I go there and know how to talk and <laughs> know what to talk about. So that's another project we worked with. And then we also worked with WIPO in uh, a project in Zimbabwe which used to be called Rhodesia in the Southern Africa region where we, uh, where we worked with a number of uh, IP offices throughout Sub-Saharan Africa in uh, educational programs and capacity building and intellectual property um, education. Uh, the goal of this is to eventually uh, help to foster the development of IP and innovation in these developing countries. Uh, but it's a long haul, very, very long haul. And uh, we, we, are a, we are unique in that um, we're not only academics. We, I consider us as blue-collar academics. I mean, academics who go out in the field and work. Uh, and then see, well, that's what the real world looks like. So in some ways, uh, we're uh, out of step with a lot of the academics in that regard. We uh, have real-world experience uh, going into places like uh, Zimbabwe, Algeria, and another country we worked in was Armenia, Mm -hmm. which is former Soviet Union, and uh, and particularly nowadays, one can appreciate the complexity of uh, countries which are part of the former Soviet Union and the challenges in such a place. So those are are some of the projects we worked on.
0: To bring it back around to where we started, you've also been teaching extensively in our hybrid JD program. Uh, have, like, what? Uh, why do you think that people that are s- seeking a law degree, especially in intellectual property, should should really pull the trigger and do it? Why do you think it's important for the future that uh, people that are already working should go get their JD and become uh, informed more in intellectual property?
1: Yeah. Well, the uh It's interesting. The hybrid program, in a way, is. Franklin Pierce Law Center Uh, because the Franklin Pierce Law Center had a very diverse uh, student body with a lot of people who were uh, mid-career professionals moving into intellectual property. Similarly the hybrid program is just that. We have students who are incredibly uh, uh, accomplished professionals in their given fields. and uh, who, when I teach them, I learn from them as well. Uh, for example, when I teach property in the hybrid program and one of the students uh, had worked on Wall Street during the mortgage-backed security crisis and helped me to understand uh, the issues with mortgages and promissory notes and mortgage-backed securities. And all of that. So it's really interesting how that happens. And what, why it's important is because Regardless of the many, many global problems we have faced, whether it's COVID or the war in Eastern Europe or global warming, the the important thing to keep in mind, and this is what I stress with the students, is that moving from their careers into intellectual property is critical because innovation is, is is the way to the future in the 21st century. Innovation is gonna be incredibly important in a global economy to move us beyond all these problems, whether it's on Earth or into outer space, which is gonna happen, which is, which is happening right now. Uh, and um, intellectual property is, is the um, system of law which facilitates global innovation development. And I was just talking to somebody this morning about this on uh, LinkedIn, uh, saying that we're, we're pulled in two directions. We're pulled by the past. For example, the war in Ukraine or the crisis in Sri Lanka is the past pulling us back into the 19th century. But on the other hand, innovation is going to pull us into the 21st century and beyond. So, Students coming into the hybrid program will learn about intellectual property and um, practice management and law, and that is the system which will accelerate innovation into the century and beyond, uh, and also uh, build their careers in that direction at the same time. So it's a it's good in many ways, and uh, it's encouraging to see that, and I'm happy to be involved.
0: Thanks for listening to Profiles, a special series of The Legal Impact presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. To help spread a word about the show, please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Get the podcast links and back episodes at law.unh.edu podcast.